Al Jazeera podcast. David Cameron stunned Britain when he quit as Prime Minister after the Brexit referendum. Now he's triggered another political earthquake, making a shock return as Foreign Secretary. That follows the sacking of an interior minister who tried and failed to suppress major demonstrations in support of Palestinians in Gaza. So what does this mean for the UK's policies at home and abroad? I'm James Bayes, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss this. In London, we have Alex Dean, Conservative commentator and a former Conservative Party aide. In Dundee, Leslie Riddock, a former news and TV presenter. She's also an award-winning journalist and Scottish independence activist. And in London, Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. He's a former Deputy Director of UK in a Changing Europe. Thank you for joining us, all of you. Uh, this was the best-kept secret, it seems, in the UK. No-one saw it coming. Um, Alex, you know David Cameron well. I, did you have any hint of this? Um, it seems a political bombshell. It was a real surprise, a rabbit out of the hat from the Prime Minister. And I think an indication that people didn't know it was coming, not least David Cameron didn't know it was coming, is that our former Prime Minister had harsh words to say about the government's position on HS2, our high-speed rail network, um, only last month. If he knew he was going to be lined up for a return to government as Foreign Secretary, I dare say he would not have been saying that about uh, government policy. So I think this was a true surprise to everyone uh, concerned outside of Downing Street, including David Cameron. Uh, Leslie, um, a, a former Prime Minister then becoming a minister in a cabinet, that's something that happens in Europe. Um, it's not something I've heard of in the UK before. Well, apparently, there have been 15 former prime ministers in Britain who have become ministers in a subsequent government. But coming back to this question of, of whether it's a surprise or not, I mean, certainly when that criticism was uh, made at the, at the Manchester conference last month, that's one thing. But the speed with which David Cameron has been made a lord and now joins the largest unelected chamber in the world... Um, the speed that that's happened at suggests that actually that has been a few days at least in the making. And there's a lot of speculation now that a big decision that's coming on Wednesday in Britain, where the Supreme Court decides on the legality of the government's Rwanda plans for, for uh, immigrants, for, for migrants, that plan perhaps is going to get uh, vetoed by the Supreme Court and that would have been very difficult to have Suella Braverman in place since that was her plan. And perhaps she would have been campaigning for Britain to leave the uh, European Convention on Human Rights so she could just go ahead with it anyway. Now, that's not an outcome Rishi Sunak would want. So if he saw all of this coming, and who knows, who knows at the back of this, it might have been that for a few days at least, everyone knew behind the scenes that this was all happening. Tim, I'd like to um, discuss all of what's coming up in a moment, but I'd like to look back because it was 2016 when David Cameron quit as Prime Minister, the man responsible for one of the most impactful foreign policy changes in the UK, Brexit. Now, I'm not going to pronounce on Brexit, but I know you have strong views on Brexit, but it was a great political mistake, wasn't it, of David Cameron to call a referendum that he ended up losing. Um, this is an amazing comeback. 
Well, certainly, if you are on the Remain side of that particular debate, uh, you will have very mixed feelings, I think, about the decision to call a referendum and, indeed, perhaps David Cameron himself. And certainly, it was a big gamble on his part, and clearly, as you say, a gamble that he lost. I think when he resigned the day after the Brexit referendum, most people thought that he was on his way out of politics forever. So it would have been a huge surprise for um, most of us, I think, uh, for him to come back. Not least because, actually, he has, generally speaking, stayed out of politics for uh, the uh, duration. Uh, Alex mentioned the intervention he made on high-speed rail, um, but that's really one of the few interventions he's ever made since 2016. He spent most of his time, quite controversially, some would say, um, making uh, as much money as he uh, could, both through his uh, memoirs and through various uh, lobbying uh, jobs that he's had. Uh, and I think, you know, that, uh, the latter, will come up, I think, now in, in terms of, you know, the debate over whether David Cameron uh, is the right person for this job. I don't think that will make much difference to his international um, co-locutors, co but uh, I think uh, domestically that will be a bit of an issue. Alex, I've been looking back at some of the things that were written in 2016 when he stepped down. Many people said he looked like a broken man then. Well... I think one of the great shames of British politics, and this is true on both sides of the aisle, is um, wasting talent and wasting people of experience who get thrown onto the scrap heap of politics in their 50s. Now, sometimes they may choose that path uh, rather more than those who are assigned to it by others. But I think bringing in people who've got a good set of experience is useful. And I think particularly bearing in mind the channel on which I, I now appear, David Cameron is one of the few names in British politics that will really have international resonance. And I, I think, furthermore, that this is really the only job that he would return to politics to do. You know, he's not a jobbing, um, scrapping member of the Cabinet who might be doing transport or might be uh, going off and doing the education brief. He has returned to politics because he knows a good deal about foreign affairs, and this is a job that I think seems suited to him. I would say, too, given what, what Leslie has said, it, it's twice in living memory that this has happened. Former Prime Ministers uh, Returning. Alec Douglas Hume uh, did this job for Ted Heath when we were negotiating uh, with Europe. Uh, and more recently, Lord Carrington was our Foreign Secretary. He wasn't Prime Minister, but it, it was uh, from the House of Lords um, for Margaret Thatcher. So it's not, you know, it's not that common. On the other hand, it's not um, out with any kind of experience either. Well, you say, you say it's not that common, but um, I remember Lord Car Carrington, but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I don't remember a, a UK Prime Minister coming back as a Cabinet Minister in my lifetime, and I'm nearly 57 years old. Let's go to Lord Carrington, uh, Leslie, um, because he is an example of a, someone trying to do the job of Foreign Secretary while serving in the House of Lords, because we're now talking about Lord Cameron, aren't we? Um, how difficult is that politically? Uh, because you have to engage with members of Parliament. He has to have, like, a stand-in in the House of Commons. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, it means that MPs cannot directly question the Foreign Secretary at a time when there are two, essentially, world wars. There are... It's an extraordinary time to not be able to have that direct connection with uh, someone in such an important post. So, I mean, that's already gathering ahead of steam. I appreciate that... I mean, there's, you know, at the risk of being a little controversial with, it, with Alex, I don't think this is a technocratic sort of game almost where someone that's been a pretty good player, like an old football manager, can lose a job in, in one team and get 
pushed around and perhaps do a decent job somewhere else. This is meant to be a democracy. And the thing that lots of people in, in Britain, and Scotland particularly, will not forgive David Cameron for, is introducing austerity for 10 pointless years, which has left measurably uh, people worse off and has actually managed to reverse life expectancy in Britain. It was that bad and impactful. And already the headlines are starting to run. What will happen about welfare? I know that's not his department, but it brings that whole nasty party thing alive again for lots of people who felt they, they lost out and Britain lost out under him. Tim, uh, he's taking this job in part because... Um, Sunak has decided to sack the Interior Minister or Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. She's been a deeply controversial figure. Just bring our audience up to speed on some of the things she said, because one of the most recent comments was about those Gaza marches, and we saw so many people on the streets of London. She described those as hate marches. Yes, I mean, she has made some very, very controversial remarks about um, people who are supporting a ceasefire, uh, she calls them pro-Palestinian and, as you say, even worse, um, hate marchers. Uh, those remarks, I think, plus the fact that many people felt that uh, she had criticised the police for not banning the big march in London that took place on Saturday, uh, really did, I think, uh, bring the controversy to a new boiling point. Uh, I think many people felt that her remarks were unnecessarily inflammatory. Um, she, on the other hand, I think feels very strongly about the issue, genuinely. But everything she does is also seen, rightly or wrongly, and probably rightly, through the lens of her leadership ambitions. I think many people feel that the Conservative Party is probably going to lose the next election uh, to be held in 2024 and that Suella Braverman is constantly thinking about how to best position herself in order to take over from Rishi Sunak should he resign after that election. And many of her remarks are clearly designed to appeal to, uh, if you like, the authoritarian right uh, of the Conservative Party, the, the membership in particular, which of course has the final say uh, in any leadership contest. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, there was a degree to which people felt by the end, actually, that Suella Braverman was almost trying to get herself sacked in order to make herself some kind of martyr and to distance herself uh, from a ship that many people think is going to go down uh, in the next year or so. Alex, you know how the Conservative Party works. How much of a nightmare is she for the Prime Minister outside the Conservative Party? We also learn that Therese Coffey, who was the Environment Secretary uh, and a former Deputy Prime Minister, has also resigned. I think um, Braverman has more of a following in the party than Therese Coffey does, with no disrespect meant to the latter. I think that if there is danger to the government from the backbenches and people newly going to become uh, on those backbenches, no longer ministers, it's more from Suella Braverman rather than uh, Therese Coffey. And we'll see her resignation speech either in a day or two or next week, and that will give us an indication of the kind of person she wants to be now that she's out of government. I always think it's a bit harsh for people to say X or Y or Z is trying to speak on behalf of this group in a party or that uh, that section of a party, rather than thinking, well, perhaps, just perhaps, it's what they actually think. And it is possible um, of somebody looking at the situation uh, on the streets of London uh, of late and be aghast at the uh, failure of law enforcement, as she saw it, uh, to ensure that 
protest was law-abiding, without hate speech and respecting uh, the rule of law in this country, including not wearing masks at protests, which many uh, thousands of people did. So it's possible that our then Home Secretary was actually, heaven forbid, saying what she thought rather than trying to narrow cast to some part of the Conservative Party. And if that's the case, I would say that she was speaking what a lot of people in this country were thinking as well. Of course, one of the other things she said was sending asylum seekers to Rwanda was her dream and obsession. We've already touched on it, Leslie, briefly. The government faces quite an important decision by the UK Supreme Court on Wednesday on whether that is lawful. Could that turn out to be the next problem facing the UK Prime Minister? Well, yeah, absolutely. And if it, if it does, as it, as it may seem, uh, go against the government so that the, the Rwanda policy doesn't work, the, the, the British government's going to have to really think again about the whole strategy on migration. But, uh, I, I mean, the, the level of kind of um, opposition there is in, in, in across Britain, actually, to many of Suella Braverman's old stances is pretty enormous. And when we're talking about these uh, marches that were the final provocation, if you like, inflammatory speech, uh, comments by, uh, by Suella Braverman, by a Home Secretary, you've got to remember... and that 126 people were arrested from the far right protecting the Cenotaph, which is at the centre of London, a special place of remembrance, which was nowhere near where the largely peaceful Palestinian de demonstration was going. Now, I've been on, on those pro-Palestine demonstrations in Scotland. This is going to be like the, the protests over the poll tax in Britain and over the Iraq war, where people keep trying to ignore that, that almost a majority of the population want a ceasefire in Palestine in Britain, and that cannot be expressed while we have these games being played by the British government trying to distract us all from a terrible crisis. Let's look now at what all this could mean for UK foreign policy. Tim, I mean, normally, UK's foreign policy is set by the Prime Minister and the Cabinet follow it, but do you think that will be different with an ex-Prime Minister as leader, with his individual take on these issues? Do you think he'll have an outsized sway in this particular case? Well, I mean, I think Alex is right to suggest that um, David Cameron has, if you like, a great contacts book. Uh, you know, he has really good... Uh, relations with some people who are still, uh, in fact, prime ministers and, and leaders um, from his time in, in office. Um, but I doubt very much whether he will, in particular, drive Britain's um, foreign policy in any direction that Rishi Sunak himself or indeed the cabinet would, would take. I think, obviously, the biggest agenda item will be Israel-Palestine and the attempt on the part of the British government um, to exercise some uh, leverage, if you like, over what Israel is doing while uh, maintaining a, a very strong stance against Hamas. And then the other big agenda item, and it's one we've all forgotten about really um, for a while, although we shouldn't have, is um, uh, Ukraine and Russia. And there again, I think we will continue to see Britain take a very, very strong stance on behalf of Ukraine. I think the interesting thing will be relationships with the European Union. Actually, Rishi Sunak has done quite a lot himself to uh, heal some of the divisions between the UK and the EU, particularly over Northern Ireland. And I would have thought David Cameron could play quite an important and emollient role in that respect. Alex, let me go further on Gaza. 
Um, here's a quote from 2010, the beginning of David Cameron's time in office. The situation in Gaza has to change. Gaza cannot and must not be allowed to remain a prison camp. Yet he also was the Prime Minister in 2012 and 2014 when um, there were Israeli wars on Gaza uh, and he was pretty supportive of Israel. I'm sorry, Alex. Israeli wars on Gaza is the kind of language that I wasn't expecting um, from you. I mean, it's a, Israel was attacked on October the 7th in the most appalling way, and people seem willing to brush over it in a way that I simply won't accept, in the same way that it's been said on uh, this channel that, you know, the inflammatory words were from our Home Secretary, Suella Bradman, in an article, rather than death to all Jews chanted on the streets of London uh, last week and trending on Twitter in the United Kingdom. Uh, Alex, Alex, less. Alex, why is it not, Alex, an Israel war on Gaza? There are 11,000 people the, the, the killed, 4,500 of the those are children. The moment somebody challenges you, you start shouting. No, I'm you, not shouting. I'm just... challenges you, you start... No. You're, you're shouting at me now. I'm not I think shouting. anyone watching or listening will realise no, you've raised shouting. your voice and you don't need to. It's important we remain civil and maintain the ability to disagree politely and civilly, even on things on which we disagree profoundly. Agreed. 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 So why is it not Israel's war on Gaza when there are 11,000 people killed and uh, the Israelis can yeah. only name a, a number of about 100 of Hamas leaders they can actually name, and there are 4,500 children dead? They're not Hamas fighters. Yeah. You're... Your, your figures, first of all, come from Hamas, a prescribed terrorist organisation in the country I'm speaking to you from. Secondly, Israel is perfectly entitled to defend itself against Hamas, not a war on Palestine, but to root out an, an organisation that led to the brutal murder of many, of many of its citizens. And Israel is not obliged in any way, and no country is obliged, to hold back when seeking to ensure its own safety. And Israel's the only country in the world expected to act with some kind of magnanimity and restraint when seeking to defend itself from having been attacked. Be under no mistake, this war, this was started by Hamas, not by Israel in any way. And the, the fact that you phrased it in the way that you did, I think, is very telling. Leslie, what's your take on this? Because I've spoken on this programme to numerous international lawyers about this and they believe Israel is in breach many times of international humanitarian law and the, what it's doing, despite what may have happened on October the 7th. Yes, and I think the position here, our own uh, First Minister in Scotland, Hamza Youssef, had relatives that were in Gaza for four weeks, phoning every day, not expecting to actually see the following day the bombing was so intense. But he managed, managed to keep um, a kind of even side on this, respecting the Jewish and Muslim communities in Scotland. Absolutely, Hamas committed the first war crime uh, on October the 7th. But we're now at a situation where it, I, I think people would be struggling, actually, to think that what's happening now on lots of counts, listen to the news, there's a hospital with babies dying now and, and pleading for some, either for fuel to keep their ventilators going or for an escort to take them across to Egypt. Now, I mean, there's nothing that's more powerful than children, babies, uh, when it comes to everybody across the world realises there's an impasse here that has to change. Now, Israel might well feel vengeful, might well feel it has to de uh, defend itself. The job of the international community is to come in and place a different template on that. I grew up in Northern Ireland. Th this desire for striking back does not get you anywhere in the long term, and the long term is what the rest of the international community should be concerned about. Turning to you now, Tim, and uh, Cameron in the EU, because clearly he knows all the big players there. 
are they going to say, isn't it great having someone we know, this great statesman, former leader back? Or are they going to say, oh, no, it's the man that brought us Brexit? Uh, well, I think opinion will be um, divided on that. Uh, I do think, however, that most European leaders do regard David Cameron as a serious statesman, at least. Um, I think even those who feel he made a very big mistake gambling over Brexit um, feel the same way. I think what I would say about David Cameron's handling of the European issue before is that he placed probably far too much reliance on Germany, for example, um, as uh, a means of the UK getting what it uh, wants uh, out of the EU. And I hope he won't make that mistake again. I, think, I, I hope that David Cameron has to some extent learned his lesson about the way that the EU actually works and that, we'll, um, that he will actually think more about the EU as a collective rather than a, a series, if you like, of, uh, of governments trying to agree. I think that's incredibly important. That said, I don't think there is very much that a foreign minister can do about our economic deal with the uh, European Union. I think there's a marked reluctance on the part of the EU to... Um, reopen, if you like, the um, trade and cooperation agreement, even though that's actually coming up for some kind of review and, and renewal uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, I think uh, really all we can do is do, do what we can to reduce the, the friction, both diplomatic and economic. Um, David Cameron could perhaps play a part in that, but I, I don't want to overstate how much one man um, can make a difference. Alex, what do you think were Cameron's motives for taking this job? Why do you think he decided to do it? Was it a sense of duty? I recall his resignation speech in 2016. I love this country, feel honoured to have served it and will do everything I can in future to help this great country succeed. Or do you think he has some political ambition left? In a scenario, for example, where the Conservatives lose a general election, do you think he might be tempted uh, to, to leave the House of Lords and come back to elective politics? Is that a possibility? Should Sunak be worried? My instinct is that it's the former. I think that he feels that sense of public service, and, of course, that was public service that was cut short because he felt he couldn't continue to serve after he lost the Brexit referendum. But there's no doubt about it. People will be speculating about the latter. People will speculate that it's very difficult for Rishi Sunak to manage with yesterday's manager hovering over his shoulder. So I think his intentions are good. I think that... Um, especially in the foreign uh, brief where he feels he knows the pitch well and he knows that he's got something to offer. Uh, I think that's where he, he feels he can continue to contribute something to British public life. But the, there's no doubt about it. Some people will be suggesting that his mere presence undermines Rishi Sunak. And that's going to have to be something that Cameron and Sunak both have to work at to demonstrate it's not true. Can I ask you, Leslie, how difficult do you think it will be um, for Cameron to serve under a man... Um, sorry, to, 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 to serve under a man who was your boss. Um, Sunak is 15 years younger, and I looked it up, Sunak had only been a year, an MP for a year and a month when Cameron resigned. I think he'll manage, you know, to put a pretty good front on that, actually. Um, I, I should imagine that that he will... He's already talked about being... A, you know, it's being talked of him as being a team player. Um, he's... The only statement he's made so far on foreign affairs is saying that he will stick to the position of the Allies. So 
the thing about it for Sunak would be um, he has recently touted himself as a change candidate. That was the, the position he put forward at the recent conference as a means to try to uh, restore the Tories' fortunes, which is almost impossible, actually. Now, here he is with uh, basically the architect of, of austerity, the man who created, as you've said, the big event of Brexit. Uh, I think the opinion polls suggest that the whole of Britain now joins the Scots, who never voted for it in the first place, in wanting to be back in the EU. This is a continuity situation if you have a very prominent, visible foreign secretary um, like David Cameron, who is associated with a lot of the old policies. Now, you can't distance yourself very easily from that. So I wonder if Rishi Sunak is now in a position where he's going to have to embrace the whole Tory project of the last 15, 20 years years to try to make sense of what he's doing with Cameron at that helm. Tim, how do you think this makes the UK look? I mean, the UK talks a lot about its special relationship with the US. Uh, President Biden doesn't seem to have much time for that uh, since, uh, since we've had Brexit in the UK. Um, UK politics before Brexit seemed to be a, a, a pr pretty serious affair, but in the seven years after, afterwards, it's been a roller coaster. some might say a soap opera. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this contributes that much, actually, to the to the soap opera. Uh, I mean, I think people around the world have made up their mind about Britain uh, with regard to, to Brexit and, and thinking that it may have been a mistake. Uh, I don't think one man can make very much difference to um, Britain's reputation uh, abroad. I think David Cameron, you know, is a confirmed Atlanticist. So in as much as uh, our relationship, special or otherwise, with the US will continue, he will reinforce that in all sorts of ways. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the domestic politics in some ways uh, are more interesting, perhaps, in the sense that, uh, you know, we will get some polling fairly soon, I suspect, about whether this has made much difference to the way that people think about the government. I doubt very much whether it will actually make very much um, difference. We've already got some polling on what people think of David Cameron, not since he was appointed, but just before that. Uh, and it was, generally speaking, not particularly positive um, for the former prime minister. So I think anyone expecting this uh, either internationally or domestically, to make a big difference to the government's standing at home and therefore perhaps a difference to whether this Conservative Party manages to hold on at the next election uh, is, is probably going to conclude, well, actually not much. Um, it's, a, it's a change of personnel, but actually the fundamentals for the government at home, both in terms of the economy and the state of public services, and in terms of how the Prime Minister is seen, are not looking very positive. And I don't think appointing David Cameron is going to alter that in the slightest. Thank you very much, Tim, and thank you to all our guests, Alex Dean, Leslie Riddock and Tim Bale. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Cara Legg, Fungi Unuen and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Ranjit Kurian. The programme was edited by Ahmed Al-Fagha, Zainabada and Joe de Vries. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening and tune in on Tuesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, undocumented Afghan migrants are among those being forced to leave Pakistan. What that means for the Afghans there now. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.